You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We are in the middle of a sermon series. And by middle, I mean dead end of a sermon series. I say that so often, it just comes off my tongue called Begin the Story. We went through the book of Genesis. This is week 14. We've gone through, and today we're going to wrap up with the final story, the final character named Joseph. Uh, But just to get us in, we'll do a background so we can get all caught up. If you have any questions at all, feel free to text them. I'll do my best to answer them. If I don't know, I'll let you know. If you have any answers to questions I posed, feel free to add. This is not a monologue. I'm hoping it to be a dialogue, so feel free to speak. Uh, But here is our catch-up for us all. We talked about how God created everything, and it was good, and it was very good, and created human beings, and we were made to be these co-divine rulers with God, to rule over creation with God. God made us in God's own image and likeness, and it was good. And so before we have to talk about the fall, or before we talk about sin, before we talk about original sin, which is something that happens in chapter three, we need to talk about original glory, that you were made in goodness. In fact, when God looked at humanity, he said it was very good. And that image has not departed from you. You are still currently made in the image of God. We call it the imago dei, if you want to know the Latin $25 word. You are good. But in chapter 3, humans mucked it up, and they introduced sin and selfishness, disease and death by disobeying and breaking the boundary. And this is what we call original sin, and this gets handed down to us. So why you are made divine and glorious in the image of God, uh, there's a part of you that is broken and in need of salvation that has been inherited down spiritually from human to human and to us. There were multiple rescue attempts to rescue this creation that got mucked up, that got messed up. It starts with Cain and Abel. There's hope there. It moves on to Noah. There's hope there. Noah's name means rest wishing that there was rest from the curse that had been brought on creation. It moves on past Noah to his children. We spiral downwards all the way into the Tower of Babel where humanity is at its worst and most selfish. But God comes up with a plan, a rescue plan. And it's not worldwide flood. It's not even global in perspective at the beginning. It's one family from nowhere, Sarah and Abraham. Almost 100 years old, childless, And God says, my rescue plan is that I'm going to create a great nation, a great people from you. And they said, we're 100. We have zero kids. I don't know how you're going to do it, but let's do it. And so God does create from Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, who's married to Rebecca. Isaac has children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the child of promise. And he marries Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. (laughs) He's got a couple things going on. And he has 12 sons. And as I said, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. And his 12 children become the tribes of Israel. The families of of Jacob become the tribes of Israel. We've talked about Judah. We talked about Simeon and Levi. Some of the other ones don't get as many stories. And today we're talking about son number 11. Uh, Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel. And Jake, Joseph is the child of his favorite wife. Rachel, 
Son number 12 has Benjamin, and she dies during childbirth. She names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. And Jacob's like, we're not calling you that, so I'm going to change your name to Benjamin because I'm not going to call you sorrow all day. And so Rachel's gone, and all he has from Rachel are these two children, and that's going to play a big role in today's message. We've done a few chapters at a time. We've never done 13. So just sit back and relax. I would love for you to hear the story of Joseph. I'm going to do my best to hit the highlights and maybe some of the lowlights. And um, we'll pull some points from that about our life and try to be out of here by 11 a.m. on the nose. Otherwise, cornucopia on me. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have that hand. Here's how the story's broken down. The dream is revealed. God's purpose is revealed for the family, for Joseph. The dream is revealed. And then there's three parts to the middle of his story. The pit, the prison, the palace. And then the end of it is the dream realized. The dream revealed, the journey, the dream realized. Here's what happens in the dream revealed. So it says that Jacob is old and he has his sons with him. And right away, it tells us that Joseph is the favorite. And so Jacob, the father, or Israel, whatever you want to call him, gives Joseph this beautiful coat just to kind of make him stand out, pop. It's got colors all day, probably long uh, parts of his, his, his arms. I don't know what a better word than arms. Sleeves? Thanks, everybody. <laughs> We're off to a rough start. Okay, we'll pull back together. Long parts of his sleeve. Can you, I just imagine him being like, look at this. Your brown coat looks so cool, but like... Actually, he's a young brother, but it doesn't say that he rubs it in at all. He is innocent. He doesn't... He just is telling about his life. And his brothers begin to hate him. And his brothers go to the father and they say, you can't keep treating him this way. And the father says, ah, it's Rachel's kid. I love him so much. And they hate him even more. And then Joseph says, guess what? I had a dream. It was actually two nights in a row. He had two dreams. And essentially they go like this. We were out bundling wheat. And then my stock of wheat got up and walked over and all your stocks of wheat came and bowed down to me. And they were like, why, what? Do you think you'll be the king of us? Twelve? Not going to happen. You're, the, you're number 11. You're at the bottom. And then he said, I had another dream that the moon and the sun and all 11 stars came and bowed down to me. And even the dad was like, cut it out, y'all. Like, you think we're really going to bow down to you? And the brothers are like, yeah, get him, dad. But it says his dad treasured all these things in his heart. He, he remembered this stuff. So one day, the 11 brothers were out shearing the sheep in Shechem. And uh, the father says to Joseph, why don't you go see your brothers? And the brothers say, here comes the dreamer. What should we do with him? Let's kill him. And we'll see, we will see how his dream comes to pass. And this is where we get to the pit. They said, let's throw him in this pit. It's really a cistern, an empty water cistern. And they said, let's throw him in there. And we'll see. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. Reuben, the oldest, who's already, you know, not well-loved because he had an affair with his dad's maidservant, was not great. He's trying to get back in the family. He says, we can't kill him. We can't. We can't kill him. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come up with a plan, but don't do anything. And while he's away, they throw him in the pit. They throw Joseph in the pit. 
And then they say, hey, we shouldn't kill him. He's family. Here come some traitors along the way. Let's sell him into slavery to some of these traitors. He's family. We at least owe him that much. And so they trade him to these traitors into slavery, and they take his beautiful technicolor dream coat, and they dip some goat's blood on it, and they take it back to their father, and they say, is this your son's coat? I love how innocent this question. Is this your son's coat? Yeah, it's the most beautiful coat in the land. Of course it is. Is this your son's coat? And, he's, and the father says, oh, he was... He was savagely eaten by wild animals. I should have never sent him out. And, and he tries to get consoled, but he said, I will grieve until the day that I die. And the brothers feel a little bit guilty, but not guilty enough. They're glad that Joseph is out of the way. Joseph traded into slavery now, ends up in Egypt. The slave traders take him to Egypt, and they take him to a house called Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the chief guard of all of Egypt. And Joseph is a slave in there. Both Potiphar and his wife recognize greatness in Joseph. Four times in that chapter, it says that the Lord is with Joseph. It also says that he's well-built and handsome. So I, I kind of feel akin to Joseph. You know what I mean? Just like, just kidding. It was a joke. It was a joke, everybody. So they recognize greatness in him, and they raise him as the chief slave in the chief officer's house. Things seem to be going well. But then we get to this prison situation. Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him. And he, a God-fearing man, says, absolutely not. I've been raised to a great position. Your husband has treated me so well, I would never do such a thing. And so one day, she's going to force him to do it. And she grabs his cloak, and he runs out of the house naked. And she says, well, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to make up a story. He tried to rape me. And so when her husband gets home, he says, the slave that you brought into our house tried to rape me, and I screamed, and I grabbed his cloak. Is this his cloak? And he says, yes. And Joseph is thrown in prison. But what it tells us is that the Lord was with Joseph four times. So even in prison... Joseph is well-regarded, so much so that he's put in charge of all the other inmates. The jailer says there's greatness in him, plus he's well-built and handsome. Let's put him in charge. That might be the problem with our whole world, right? Like, he's well-built and handsome, let's put him in charge. It's like, any other qualifications? No, okay. Except the Lord was with him, that's good enough for me. Put him in charge of all this. So then he's sitting around one day with the inmates. And Pharaoh's chief baker and Pharaoh's wine steward, the one who brings wine and takes a sip first because they, Pharaoh wants to make sure it's not poisoned. So that guy's got to be like, I'll drink it first. If I die, it's, don't drink it. So the, the chief wine steward and the chief baker are sitting around. They said, man, we both had dreams. And no one to interpret them. And because the Lord is with Joseph, he's confident. And Joseph said, don't interpretations belong to God? Describe your dreams to me. Classic, well-built, handsome guy. Just be like, <laughs> no, just, these are jokes, people. The wine steward said, I had a dream that I was crushing grapes and handing the cup to Pharaoh, and I don't know what it means. And I'm like, you don't know what that means? Come on. And Joseph says, it means that you're going to live and you're going to be restored back to your position in three days. 
And the baker says, I had a dream that I had three baskets of bread on my head, but the breads were getting eaten and it was no good. And Joseph says, oh, that means in three days you're going to get hanged. And these interpretations came to pass. The wine steward was put back in his position. The baker was killed. And before the wine steward left, Joseph said, please remember me when you're put back in your position. And of course, he didn't. Joseph sits in prison for two years waiting to see what happens. But then we move to the third act. and We start heading to the palace. The end of that chapter says the chief wine steward didn't remember Joseph. And then the next sentence says he forgot all about him. Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh wanted an interpretation for his dream, and no one could figure it out. He called all of his sages and the wisest men in the, in the empire, and no one could figure out what his dream was. And the wine steward said, I remember a guy who told me that I was going to be restored, and the baker was going to be hanged, and it came to pass. And Pharaoh said, bring this guy here. Bring him into the palace. Pharaoh's dream is this. Seven cows, plump, healthy. They look great. Prime beef. Seven other cows, Wagyu's, have you said? I love it. Seven other cows come out of the Nile River and they are scrawny and they stand next to the good ones and they eat them. And then Pharaoh has the exact same dream, but it's stalks of wheat. Pharaoh's like, I have no idea what's going on. And Joseph says, let me tell you, it's not two dreams, it's one dream. There's going to be seven years of abundance in the land. We're going to have so much food, it's going to be mind-blowing. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. That's the interpretation of your dream. And since God told it to you twice, it will certainly come to pass. And Pharaoh doesn't say anything. No one says anything. Pharaoh just, I mean, Joseph just goes, and here's what you need to do. He's confident. He's well-built and handsome. He's got it. The Lord is with him. Here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. During the years of abundance, you need to take 20%. You need to store it in the grain silos. And during the years of famine, we can use that and no one will go hungry. And Pharaoh goes, great idea. And Joseph assumed control of the land of Egypt. And he was 30 years old at the time. Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. He says, Pharaoh says, besides me, you're the most important person in Egypt. Besides me, everybody else will bow down to you. Not one person will move in this land without you knowing about it. Is your interest peaked at all yet? Then this happens. Joseph's original family, Jacob, his 11 brothers, starving to death. They heard there's food in Egypt during the the, the times of famine. And so they take all their silver and they go to buy it. And they see Joseph but they don't recognize him. He is thoroughly Egyptian at this point. He's got an Egyptian name. He's got an Egyptian wife. He's got half Egyptian kids. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And so he plays some tricks on them. He really desperately wants to see his younger brother, Benjamin. And so he works out this whole thing where he says, is your father still alive? You're spies in the land. You've come here to spy on our land and try to steal our stuff. I'm going to hold you all in prison until you bring Benjamin. You, you said you had a younger brother. You need to bring him. And the brothers are sweating and they're crying and they don't know what to do. And they said, we can't bring Benjamin because dad loves him so much. He's the last of Rachel's child. We cannot bring poor Benjamin. But now we're all in prison. And then, and then Joseph lets all of them go but one, Simeon. Simeon deserves to be there. He's a violent fellow. He, he probably should spend some time in, the, in, in jail. 
So all of them go back and they beg their dad and their dad says, absolutely not. But they eat all the grain they have. They eat all the food they have. And then they're starving again. And they said, we can't go back and buy more unless we have Benjamin. And the father says, well, I guess if, we all, if it's a choice between all of us dying of famine or Benjamin going and I never see him again, I guess you can take him. Benjamin shows up and the dream is realized. And there's meals and there's details and I would love to give them to you all, but I'm hitting the highlights. But this is the climax of the story. It says, Israel's sons came to buy grain with others who also came since the famine had spread to the land of Canaan. Joseph, he was the land's governor and he was selling grain to all the land's people. And when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him just like his dreams, their faces to the ground. Later, it tells us that Joseph's feelings for his brothers were so strong, he was about to weep. So he rushed to another room and wept there. And when they finally brought Benjamin, it says, Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all of his attendants. So he declared, everyone, leave now. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. And Joseph finally said, after they repeated the story 30 times, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. And then in chapter 45, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me here before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in land, and there's going to be another five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. The brothers go back to get their dad. Joseph says, bring everyone here. You can live here. I'm in control. We'll take the choicest land. We'll raise all the cattle. Bring the whole family back. And so they all go back to their dad and they announced to their dad, Israel slash Jacob, Joseph's still alive. He's actually ruler of the land of Egypt. And jo J Jacob's heart nearly failed and he didn't believe them. And they bring their father back to the land. There's a lot of weeping and hugging and arms around necks. These well-built, handsome men are just mess of tears. They move into the choicest land. Father Israel gives all of his children a blessing. Some of them feel like curses. They are. You should read it. Chapter 48. And then he dies. His children bury him. And then the brothers come. And they say, now that dad's dead, Joseph's surely going to kill us for selling him into slavery. And so there's one more, one more scene where they come and they're terrified and they bow down. And the most famous line out of Joseph's story, Joseph says, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many. Just as he's doing today now, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And this is the last two lines. Joseph made Israel's sons promise. Joseph said, when God takes care of you, i.e., when God brings you into the land of promise, the promised land, you must bring up my bones out of here. 
Joseph died when he was 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the last line of Genesis. Joseph dies. The end. And I will tell you, spoiling it, Exodus 13, Moses is hightailing out of there, and there's the wall. He's getting ready to leave. Pharaoh says, you need to go. And all the Israelites are heading out, and they're heading towards the Red Sea. And Moses is like, I better grab those bones. And he does. He grabs Joseph's bones. They are faithful to their promise to Joseph to take him out of the land of Egypt in their time. What three points can we take from that very long story of Joseph? You know how I preach? Something for us to know with our heads, something for us to experience with our heart, something for us to do with our hands. That way it has a full expression from here to here to here, and it gives us a fullness of our faith. What does God want us to know? This story is definitely trying to teach us a lot of things, but one of the most important lessons it's trying to take, teach us is that nothing and no one can deter, delay, or deny God's purposes, God's dreams. God gets one speaking line in all of those 13 chapters. God hardly speaks at all. All we hear is that God is with people or maybe God causes something, but God rarely speaks. One line. But the story throughout wants to underline that God is at work in and through and even in spite of all the characters that's going on. And nothing can delay God's plans, purposes, or dreams. Joseph tells us twice, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You didn't even send me here. It was God who did it the whole time because there was a plan that you couldn't even stopped. Do you remember the brothers? They were like, maybe if we kill them, we'll see how those dreams come out, right? I said this, God is barely mentioned, but he's acting the whole time. Almost zero lines spoken by God, yet this silent God is working the whole time in, through, and in spite of the characters. Remember they said... Let's kill him, and then we will see what becomes of his dreams. I got ahead of my own slides. You get it. And it reminds me of my own kids. This is their school picture. You can see. Head, heart, hands. I thought about that two weeks ago. This guy's a hands full, if you know what I mean. Look at him just cheesing so hard. I think he's going to be a comedian. If you see him today, he's got a huge black eye. Was it last week? He had his knees in his shirt, and he had his hands in his shirt, and he was sitting on a low table, and he went to interrupt the teacher, his mom, and he went, ha, and he just tumbled onto his eyeball onto the tile. I would show you the video, but every time I show somebody, they just wince their whole body, just like, ah, huge shiner. I don't know how to explain to you the providence of God or the plans of God or how God works in the world. These things are mysterious. But the best analogy I can come up with is with my kids, that I have a plan and purpose for their life. I have a direction that I want them to go. And even when they don't know, even when I'm not sitting down and lecturing them, even when I'm not actively, I, I'm still corralling them towards this goal, right? For me, the plan is that they are uh, Jesus-following, community-serving adults. I want them to be whole, healthy, happy adults who love Jesus and love their neighbor well. That's my goal for them. But even when they're breaking the rules, that's part of the plan. Because kids are supposed to test their boundaries. So, like, they can't subvert my plan, even when they're breaking the rules that they know they're not supposed to. I let them sneak sometimes, snacks. I know they're doing it. I know everything. Sometimes I let them do it. And sometimes I give them five hours of lecture for doing it, right? They get in big trouble. 
They're not subverting my plan for their life by breaking those rules. Also, I, my wife and I have a, we may be totally wrong about this, but we have a philosophy that it's good for them to get in trouble together because they're going to have each other long after we're gone. And I want them to have a close relationship. And testing their boundaries and breaking the rules together is bonding for them. And I'll come in and yell at all of them and they'll just commiserate together and be like, Dad, is so mean. And then we have this shared experience of the meanness of Dad. Their breaking of the rules, they're trying to subvert my plans is actually part of the plan. Do you understand what I'm saying? They cannot, they cannot at this stage in their life break my plan for their life. Even in their disobedience, that's all part of it. And that's what this story wants us to know, that nothing can stop God's plans. And no one can stop God's plans. No one and nothing. One of my most famous promises comes from Romans 8, 28. Famous, you should know it and memorize it. I say it 10 times a year. Paul, writing to the churches following Jesus, says, we know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even the bad stuff that happens to you, God promises to turn it into good. It does not go against God's plan for the world and for your life. And the story desperately wants you to know God's plans cannot be subverted. They are going to come to pass. They're going to come to pass. Does that mean we're all just robots? Does that mean we're all just pawns in the game? The opposite. The story wants you to know the exact opposite, which leads us to our second point. What does God want you to feel? What does God want you to experience? When you know that God is with you and you are with God, you can be confident in your actions. You can be well-built and handsome, just confident, walking in the world like you're a Joseph. Just, here I am. Because the Lord was with Joseph four times. That's one of the things the story wants you to know, is that when God is with you, and when you are with God, you can act confidently. You can act confidently in the world. Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Describe your dreams to me. He is confident that he is God's man for the mission. He's God's person for the plan. Because he knows God is with him, and he knows that he's with God. And so he could tell the baker and the wine steward, only God can do that stuff. Definitely tell them to me. I love the juxtaposition there. I love the contrast. I would feel so, I would, I, I would never do something like that. I'm not as confident as him. But this story wants you to feel the confidence of someone who is with God and who God is with. Again, that story, I'm not going to read all this. But Joseph describes the dream to Stribes, describes the dream to, to Pharaoh. He says, the last line, the dream occurred to Pharaoh twice because God has determined to do it and God will make it happen, the cows, remember? Immediately. Now Pharaoh should find an intelligent, wise, well-built, handsome young man to be put in charge of this whole operation. Pharaoh didn't ask. Pharaoh wasn't even like, hey, that makes sense. Pharaoh doesn't even get to speak because the story wants to convey a lot of things about the empire, that all the empires of the world will bow to God's plan and purpose in the man of Joseph. But Joseph is confident. He's confident because God is with him. He's He's able to, the most powerful man on earth, little old Joseph from Nowheresville, a slave in the house of Potiphar, a prisoner uh, charged with sexual assault, 
stands before Pharaoh and says, I got an idea. God wants you to experience the confidence of knowing not only is God's purposes and plan are going to come to pass and you can't stop it, but also when God is with you, God encourages you to live confidently. Is God going to get God's purposes and plans, the dream, done no matter what? Yes. Are we robots? No. The opposite. We are free to act freely. So what should we do? We should know God's will. We should rest in it. And we should live confidently. One of the greatest Old Testament scholars alive, Walter Brueggemann, he says, God's purpose is not the end of human planning, but the ground for it. That God's plan is above human plans does not mean that there should not be human planning. It means that it must be responsive and faithful to God's plan. Summarizing, you get to live and act freely even though God's plan is going to come to pass. But you should be on God's side. You're going to want to be on God's side of God's plan because it is going to happen. And your choice is you get to be working against it or you get to work with it. It's not the end of your planning, but God's plan should be the ground for our planning. Amen? Feel good? What does God want us to do with this story? With the idea that God's plan will come to pass and we can live and act confidently knowing that God is with us and we are with God. Non-anxious, big-picture people forgive people. That's what this story wants to end on. That when you know the big picture and you're living confidently, you can forgive. You can forgive. This is Gladys Staines. That's her husband, those are her three children. They are from Australia, and they moved to India in the 90s, 80s. And for 15 years, they worked with leper colonies to try to help. They started a leper hospital in Orissa. And after 15 years, some radical Hindus came and killed her, the men in her life, her husband and her children. And she wrote an article into the paper, and she said, I forgive the killers. God in Christ has forgiven me and expects his followers to do the same. The Bible says, whoever forgives their sins will be forgiven. Therefore, in the light of eternity, we all need the forgiveness of our sins. Obviously, the woman is a saint. I would have some frustration and some hard part. I, I don't know if I could do it. But she wrote it in the paper. And it spread like fire. The country recognized this woman as a saint in a land that was not thoroughly Christian. Religious leaders of all stripes gathered together in all different kinds of communities and said, this is the example of what we need. Someone who forgives. And this is the type of spirituality that we need to emulate. Because in this country, when someone killed someone, there was a retributive, there was, a, there was more killing that happened and it piled and piled and piled. And they said, we need to follow this woman's example. And we see, what, what, what is she? she's a big picture thinker. In the light of eternity. In the light of eternity. We should offer forgiveness. In 2005, she was offered the highest civilian award from the uh, president of India. It's called the Padma Shri. Hundreds of people receiving the award. 
Olympians, Bollywood directors, dancers, athletes. It goes on for hours. And they said when her name was called, she got a two-minute standing ovation because the country recognized that she was the hero that their country needed, not, not these guys making movies. These Bollywood directors. I love Bollywood. It's so good. But she's the hero the country needs. So out of all of them, she gets the ovation. She gets the loudest of applause. Big picture, non-anxious, confident people are forgiving people. Bringing Egypt to its knees was the easy part for God. Immediately, Egypt's like, you be in charge. Joseph literally says, I became a father to Pharaoh. You're like, man, good for you, Joseph. That was so easy. It didn't even, I mean, it was not even, just, it just happened. Convicted sexual assaulting prisoner was just like, I'm in charge now. And everyone's like, okay. That was the easy part. The hard part was bringing the family to its knees and to tears and reconciliation. And that was the dream for Joseph, that they would bow down to him. But it's not a bowing down in a subservient way. It was in reconciliation and forgiveness. Joseph probably didn't even know that that was God's full plan for him until it was happening. When he said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, I think he's coming to the realization at the same time. It is, it is God's plan for us. And it's what God wants us to do, is be forgiving people. That's the passage. He revealed his identities. They wept, and he says, it wasn't you, it was God. Forgiveness is such an important theme. I got three more slides, so if you've got any questions, send them. It's such an important theme that Jesus cannot stop talking about it. And we talk about unconditional love all the time, and, and we are absolutely sure that God loves us unconditionally, but there are some things that are not conditional. This is the Lord's Prayer. You've heard it, our Father in heaven, right? Jesus says, you should pray like this, our Father, hallowed be your name, kingdom come, will be done, give us today our daily bread, forgive us as we forgive others. Don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And we add, for thine is the kingdom and the glory. And the, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus jumps right into, and if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you either. He doesn't want to talk to us about who the Father is. He doesn't want to talk to us about God's hallowed name or what the kingdom is or the mission or what it means to get our daily bread or temptation or the evil one. He wants to talk to us about how important forgiveness is. And in the kingdom, it's conditional. You get as much as you give. You get as much as you give. So not only does big picture, not anxious living allow us to be forgiving people, we will come to see that part of the big picture is our willingness to forgive each other. It's not just something that happens from seeing the big picture. But that's, what God, that's God's big picture for us, is to be forgiving people. That is the will of God for you and for us, to be people who forgive. Questions, comments, answers, solutions, criticisms. Great question. If God's plan is total and finite, how do we not blame God for our problems? Thank you for the question. 
there is a way in which thinking about God's plan that says, that, and I was trying to touch on, if God's plan has to come to pass, then we must be robots, right? That's how my brain thinks. Because God can't be wrong and God can't be a liar. And so if God knows something's going to happen, then I guess I have to, I have to do this with my arms because God saw it in the future. And God can't be wrong or a liar. But that's not what the past, that's not what Joseph says. And that's not what Paul says in Romans 28. It doesn't say God caused all the bad stuff. It says that God will take all the bad stuff and use it for good. And so I genuinely believe that God allows for us to be free people. And in our freedom, we make the mistake to hurt one another and to harm each other. But God is powerful enough to give us the promise that even in the harm and the hurt, God will redeem it for good. So when I talk about God's plan and God's purpose, I'm mostly talking about the big plan, the salvation plan. So when God was going to save creation, he's going to do it through Abraham's children, it comes down to Jesus. And Jesus has a plan now that the kingdom is going to come and this new creation is going to come. And so that's not, nothing can stop this. Nothing can God, stop God's salvation plan. But the other parts about our daily movements and our actions, that stuff's a mystery. One of my favorite psalms, and then I'll be done. You got me on another sermon. I'm ready to go. Psalm 139, 138, 139 begins with, you know my steps before I take them. You know the words before they come out of my mouth. And the psalmist says, these thoughts are too wonderful for me to know. So anytime anyone asks a question about how does God know and how do we have freedom, I'm like, these thoughts are too wonderful for us to know. And if that feels like a shallow answer for you, it is. You're welcome. I don't know. That's part of the mystery of our faith. One or two more. I saw some coming. Thank you for sending them. And then we will wrap up. Someone's trying to trap me. God's plan is holistic, not necessarily super specific, personal, you know. uh, That's an opinionated answer. And I feel that. I hear that. At least when we're talking about it in the big sense. God's plan is holistic. You have freedom to move within the boundaries of the plan, but you can't stop it. It's best to be on the right side of the plan. Great. Let's summarize this and pray. What does God want us to know with our head? That God's purposes will not be delayed, deterred, or denied. What does God want us to know with our heart from the story of Joseph? Is that knowing God is with you and being with God allows you to live non-anxiously in the world. To be confident in who you are and in whose you are. And what does God want us to do with our hands? Non-anxious, big picture people forgive people. In fact, that's not just, it's not an accident. That's part of God's purpose for your life is to be forgiving people. And I know it's hard and I know you don't want to, but that's God's will for your life. And Jesus does not give us any exceptions. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this story. Thank you for Joseph's life, that it can be an example to us. May we rest in your plan and purpose. May you build that confidence within us. And may we be people so sure of your presence in our life 
May we be people who are so transformed by the forgiveness that you have given us that it spills out. Knowing that even the harm directly intended for us, you will redeem. Help us to be people of redemption and reconciliation. People of forgiveness. People that are quick to ask for forgiveness. And people who are quick to offer forgiveness. But Father, we need your help. That is not a part of our nature, and it does not come easy to us. So would your Holy Spirit empower and encourage that within us, and may it start right here as we come to the bread and the cup, that this would be spiritual nourishment for us on our spiritual journeys to be confident, forgiving people. And as we come forward, we expect to meet you here. We know your presence is with us in this place and in these elements. And so we come with great praise and anticipation to meet you and to receive from you. Table Church, will you help me end this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us.